0: This is an ABC podcast. So one very unique aspect of Chinese business is the phenomenon of the rubber chop.
1: This is Su Lin Wong, a journalist in Hong Kong.
0: When I was bureau chief in Shenzhen for, sorry, I don't know if you want me to get into this.
1: I absolutely want you you to get into this. Go, Go ahead, please. These days she works for The Economist, but back in 2019, she was tasked with setting up the new Shenzhen Bureau of the Financial Times.
0: And so as a result, I had to go and organise our own chop. <laughs> and it was a total nightmare. Like, I had I, I had a pile of documents. I had to go to various government departments to get approval.
1: What she's talking about is basically a stamp.
0: Everything from, like, the most elaborate types of chops that are gold-plated or silver-plated or um, have jade carvings in them. It's pretty heavy. It's like you can hold it in the palm of your hand um, and and you match it with, with some red ink.
1: See, Chinese business is just a bit different to what we're used to in the West. And if you want a perfect example of that, the chop is it. The requirement for a company to have a seal or a stamp like this was abolished decades ago in the West. But in China, they still exist and are very important
0: chopping is seen as more authoritative than handwritten signatures. And in China, basically whoever controls the chop controls the company. And as a result, there are often stories in China about feuding co-founders or business owners who will be trying to steal the company chop and therefore gain control of the company.
1: So, you can steal a company.
0: So in April 2020, an ousted co-founder of one of China's formerly more popular e-commerce platforms called Dangdang broke into the company's headquarters. And in an attempt to try to retake the company, removed dozens of official chops.
1: This, to be clear, is a multi-billion dollar online shopping company, a Chinese equivalent of Amazon.
0: Eventually, the police cleared this ousted co-founder of any wrongdoing, which seemed to imply that the chops were rightfully his and he could use them as he saw fit.
1: Right. So he he got these chops and basically that meant that he was rightfully in control of the e-commerce platform. Yes, according to... um... According to the police. Wow. This isn't a historical tale. It happened last year. It happened semi-regularly and it's been going on for decades. It's not the main difference between Chinese and Western businesses, though. Where companies in the West are just expected to make money, in China they have a higher purpose.
0: These types of companies are supposed to work together to help make China great again, so to speak.
1: And that can cause problems. (laughs) I'm Matt Bevan, and this is China If You're Listening, a podcast about how the relationship between Australia and China came to the verge of collapse. Today, the story of a company called Huawei. Anything having to do with national security, we're not dealing with Huawei. And how Australia decided to block it from building our 5G phone network.
2: We came to the view that the risk couldn't be mitigated.
1: But it set in motion a series of events that would lead to arrests, allegations of hacking and pure white-hot fury in Beijing.
2: This is hostage diplomacy. Let's not kid ourselves.
1: Huawei's beginnings were humble. The company was launched in Shenzhen, a city in Guangdong province, right next to Hong Kong. Shenzhen literally means place of the deep drainage ditch. It was basically a small town surrounded by farmland. But in the late 1970s, the region got a new governor who had just been released from 16 years in political prison for offending Chairman Mao. His name was Xi Shun. So his first job after he's rehabilitated is to go to Guangdong. You might remember Xi Shun. He was the father of Xi Jinping. China expert Joseph Terrigian says what Xi Shun saw when he got out of prison shocked him. And so he can see in these extraordinarily striking visual terms... How far China had fallen behind. And so in this unremarkable little town, Xi began an experiment in capitalism.
3: Throughout China, the country's one billion people are fed by the iron rice bowl. There's one big pot from which the government doles out to all. But in Shenzhen, employees have to meet contracts.
1: This is the ABC's Helene Chung, reporting in the early 80s about the rise of Shenzhen as a capitalist wonder.
3: Unlike the rest of China, they don't have the security of lifelong employment. They're hired and fired. But their pay is double and triple that of workers elsewhere.
1: It began a spark that would sweep the nation and entirely change the ideology of the Communist Party.
3: Special incentives, reduced tax on profits, exemption from import duties and the right to hire and fire, have lured businessmen from Hong Kong, Japan, America and Australia.
1: Shenzhen was the birthplace of Chinese capitalism. The
3: party has found more relevance in the pages of the Wall
1: Street Journal than in the works of Marx and Mao. And it was so popular that they had to try and keep people out.
3: A 100-metre-long barrier with barbed wire and searchlights is being built around Shenzhen to seal it off from the rest of China to prevent ordinary Chinese from being contaminated by foreign ways.
1: As this was happening, a young man named Ren Zhengfei arrived, looking for a better life. He, like many people in Shenzhen had previously worked for the state as an engineer in the Chinese army before being made redundant. He got a job in an oil company there and then started his own electronics company in 1987. In naming it, he took the phrase Zhonghua yuwei meaning China has promise, shortened it and made Huawei. His plan was to make phone parts, buying them from overseas, figuring out how they worked, then producing them for China. At the time, getting a landline phone installed cost about the same as the average national annual salary. He wanted to make it cheaper. As the company grew, Ren Zhengfei's life completely changed.
0: Ren Zhengfei is now a billionaire and and the head of China's leading global brand.
1: His little phone switch company is now...
0: One of the world's largest telecommunication companies and also one of the biggest smartphone vendors in the world.
1: Su Lin Wong interviewed him in his capacity as CEO.
0: He comes across as extremely sharp and charismatic, but also very, very patriotic.
1: And their headquarters? It's like if Silicon Valley and Disneyland had a giant Chinese baby.
0: It's enormous. It's like the size of a sort of small city or town in Australia and it's it's very grand there are like sort of various model castles and parks that seem to be inspired by European architecture and there's a train that takes you around just because it's so enormous and there's housing on the outskirts for employees there's like tens of different restaurants
1: Huawei is not the only global tech giant operating out of China.
0: There is this culture called 996, which refers to working six days a week from 9am to 9pm. And we've actually seen Chinese tech leaders like Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, come out and praise this type of culture.
1: There are many others, all with special chops, billions of dollars in investment, and a corporate culture centred around heavy workloads. These companies have figured out how to make high-quality electronic equipment 30% cheaper than their international competitors. In 2010, this seemed perfect for Australia, which was about to spend tens of billions on the massive national broadband network. Surely in the hopes of keeping costs low, they'd jump at the chance to buy Chinese instead of stumping up for the exy Scandinavian stuff, right? But there was a problem. This is by far the largest and most invasive surveillance system of its kind ever perpetrated. In 2013, a US intelligence whistleblower dropped a stink bomb and bolted out of the country, leaving chaos in his wake.
0: Edward Snowden is facing serious charges in the US over his leaking of details of government surveillance programs.
1: He revealed that for six years, the US National Security Agency, the NSA, had been operating a massive surveillance program called... PRISM. It was using telecommunications infrastructure to intercept and store the phone calls, texts and internet usage of hundreds of millions of people. The leaked documents also showed Australia's role in the program. An eavesdropping operation on Indonesian leaders during former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's 2007 summit in Bali. The documents also showed that Australia was spying on its neighbours. Australia uses at least seven of its embassies and high commissions in Asia to monitor local communications. The Australian government attacked Edward Snowden.
3: I am surprised that any responsible entity or organisation or people could label him as some kind of hero. This is unprecedented treachery.
1: But they didn't deny it. So, Australia was well aware of how telecommunications infrastructure could be used to spy on people. And to that end, there were concerns from Australian security experts about Huawei being involved in the building of the NBN. You're basically giving on a a platter our national security uh, secrets. The concern was that despite Huawei being a private company, it may have had too close a link with the Chinese government and the People's Liberation Army. Ren Zhengfei had, of course, once been a member of that army. Huawei denied there was a link. He was, like many of his generation, uh, part
2: of the PLA, but he was uh, sacked from the PLA in the early uh, 1980s uh, with a million other people at the time. Uh, It's not uncommon in in China at that period. If that's the only link that people have, then I think it's quite a tenuous one.
1: But in 2012, the Australian government blocked Huawei from providing equipment to the NBN reportedly on the advice of the Australian spy agency ASIO. While this frustrated Huawei, it was not seen as a big problem. Huawei was still allowed to be part of mobile phone networks. And that's very lucrative. See, about every 10 years, a new technology emerges that changes the way our mobile phones and mobile internet works. And a pile of new equipment needs to be rolled out. The Optus network was rolling out 4G mobile technology and Huawei was heavily involved. But then 10 years passed and 5G arrived. 2018 was the final year of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership. He was heading for a political
3: coup. Is there a legitimate threat to Malcolm Turnbull's leadership in play? No, I don't
1: believe so. But he didn't know it yet. At the time, he was busy with other things. A big, a critical week for the Turnbull government on energy policy.
0: Citizenship crisis that's so far ensnared 17
1: MPs. And he was also thinking a lot about 5G. I, you know, have had a
2: long interest in telecommunications and so I had more to do with this than a, a minister, let alone a prime minister, normally would have.
1: 5G's a big deal because it makes everything faster. An HD movie will download in seconds rather than minutes. Malcolm Turnbull had to decide whether Huawei and other Chinese companies could be involved in building Australia's new 5G technology. Huawei Australia Chairman John Lord went on a media blitz to say that his company was safe. Huawei, over its 30 years of operation, has never received one request from the Chinese government to provide any information or to do anything not in the interests of the country that they're in. So... Why was it fine for Huawei to be involved in the telecommunications network back when we were rolling out 4G, but not now? What changed? Well, firstly, the technology changed. The way 4G works allowed the government to draw a line between the network core, where all the important stuff happens, and the network periphery, the wires and towers. They banned Huawei from the core. 5G works differently, though. And according to the government, that was no longer possible. That's the first change. The second one is this. <laughs> Xi Jinping was in power.
0: Party members within private businesses will have to gather to study, you know, Communist Party ideology and Xi Jinping thought and study Party documents about what the big policies of the day are.
1: Xi Jinping thought is Xi Jinping's personal political philosophy. With Xi in power, the Communist Party became more involved in private companies than ever before.
0: Even in companies' annual reports now, they're citing Xi Jinping thought, uh, which is you know not really something you would see in Western business.
1: See, that's a bit different. I don't see... Qantas or Westpac, citing Scott Morrison's political philosophy much in their annual reports. But the even bigger concern was a law Xi Jinping implemented in 2017 called the National Intelligence Law, stating that everyone is responsible for state security, kind of a legally mandated patriotism.
0: There's a sense that all companies, regardless of who owns them, now have to exist for the glory of China.
1: Which According to Australian legal interpretation, means that Huawei...
2: Politically, realistically and legally, it has to comply with directions from the Chinese government and in particular the Chinese intelligence service.
1: Turnbull says he asked the head of the Australian Signals Directorate, Australia's equivalent of the NSA, to work hard to find a way to allow Huawei to stay involved.
2: My goal was actually not to ban Huawei or anyone else, but to have you know, to have as much competition uh, as possible, uh, you know, in the hope of having lower prices for Australian consumers.
1: But they decided the potential for the Chinese government to force Huawei to spy on Australians via the 5G network could not be ignored.
2: Trying to suggest that if Huawei was asked to cooperate in some cyber espionage activity, it would be able to resist it is is is. Ludicrous.
1: Th- though there is no evidence so far that they have been directed to do those things, and that they have engaged in any surveillance in Australia.
2: Yeah, the, the, well, the, there's there's no evidence that. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, there's no evidence of which which is public. That's true.
1: Okay, but the issue for Turnbull wasn't what they had done; it was what they had the capability of doing in the future.
2: We were not identifying a smoking gun, but rather a loaded gun
1: meaning the fear is that it's only a matter of time before the Chinese government forces Huawei to use their 5G infrastructure to spy on Australians. Huawei says that's not true.
2: We have a legal opinion uh, by a very high
1: legal source which says it does not apply to Huawei. Malcolm Turnbull decided to ban Huawei from the 5G network anyway.
2: We came to the view that the risk couldn't be mitigated.
1: It was August 2018, and Turnbull came up with a plan to make a low-key announcement that Huawei would be banned, thinking that might avoid angering Beijing. Plans were made, appointments were set. But just as that announcement was about to be made.
2: And apologies to the listeners, we're interrupting regular RN programming, I know, at the moment because of the unfolding situation in Canberra. And my God, how things are unfolding. At a speed and in directions we never would have predicted even this morning.
1: Malcolm Turnbull's leadership was challenged in the Liberal Party room. And his allies told him it was time to go. It's with great sadness and a heavy heart that we went to see the Prime Minister yesterday afternoon to advise him that in our judgement, he no longer enjoyed the support of a
2: majority of members in the Liberal Party Party Room.
1: It was pandemonium. Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, who was set to make the Huawei announcement, resigned after unsuccessfully trying to become the Prime Minister.
2: So we did everything we could to explain the circumstances very carefully and respectfully beforehand and make sure the announcement was as low-key as possible.
1: In the washing machine of Australian politics, Malcolm Turnbull lost the leadership and Scott Morrison became the new Prime Minister. Turnbull, through whoever was available at the time, still managed to make his announcement that Huawei and another Chinese company, ZTE, would be banned from involvement in the rollout. I would love to play you a grab of that press conference, but, um, there wasn't one. Everyone was busy conducting the semi-regular Australian ritual of knifing a Prime Minister. Barely anyone in Australia noticed what had happened with Huawei. You know who did notice, though? Huawei. I was very surprised that it was coming out this week that I still had appointments with ministers to explain Huawei's position. And also the Chinese government. They definitely noticed. As I see it, It's basically politically
2: motivated. It is a discrimination against the Chinese company.
1: And the consequences of this decision were felt both here and around the world. The Australian government has intervened a number of times over the years to stop investment by Chinese companies. They've been prevented from buying mining companies, the world's largest cattle farm and the New South Wales electricity grid. But this one stung particularly hard not least because it led a number of Australia's allies to follow suit and restrict Huawei's involvement in 5G. New Zealand came first. It poses a risk to our national security. Then the US. We're not dealing with Huawei. And the UK. There can be no new Huawei equipment. But Canada was where the biggest drama arose. That was where things for Huawei founder Ren Zhengfei became personal.
3: Let's turn to another story we mentioned to you a moment ago. Global markets have fallen following the arrest of a top Chinese technology executive in Canada. China's demanding the release of Huawei's chief financial officer. If you want
1: to do something guaranteed to irritate Beijing, short of coming up with a nasty but catchy nickname for Xi Jinping, arresting Meng Wanzhou is about the best anyone could come up with.
0: Meng Wanzhou was the chief financial officer of Huawei and is also Ren Zhengfei's daughter.
1: Not just the CFO, but the boss's daughter.
0: And in December of 2018, she was detained in Canada on charges of violating American sanctions against Iran.
1: So, Canada arrested Meng Wanzhou. The Chinese government warned them that if they didn't let her go, there would be consequences. And to be clear, this was the government issuing a warning about the arrest of a private businesswoman. And when Canada refused to cave, the Chinese government followed through. They upgraded a Canadian drug smuggler's 15-year jail term to a death sentence.
2: China has chosen to begin to uh, arbitrarily apply uh, death
1: penalty. They also arrested two Canadian academics, both named Michael, Every Western country accused China of essentially taking hostages to try and free Meng Wanzhou.
2: This is hostage diplomacy. Let's not kid ourselves.
1: This was more than two years ago. Meng Wanzhou and Canadians Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor and Robert Schellenberg are all still in limbo, though the conditions they're in are very different.
0: While the two Michaels are being held in Chinese prisons. They just went to trial and no diplomats were able to get into the trial, even the head of the Canadian mission to China. Meng Wanzhou, meanwhile, is being um, held in a very, very loose form of house arrest in her mansion in Vancouver. She's able to go on shopping trips. She's had family visits.
1: Nobody was handling the Huawei situation particularly well. Western politicians were accusing Huawei of being a front for spying, even though the concern is actually about future security, not current threats. Meanwhile, the Chinese government was taking it personally, taking extreme actions to try and help a company they claimed not to control. If Beijing's intention was to get the West to change their mind about the potential security threat of Chinese companies, what they allegedly did next was not particularly helpful. Months after the announcement, Australia started being hit by cyber attacks. It started with a uni. The Australian National University was breached, and personal data about students was stolen. They'd be trying to find some leverage, getting to know them so that they could try and manipulate them. The Parliament was also attacked, as were... The networks of some political parties, Liberal, Labor and Nationals, have also been affected. The government disclosed to the public that a hack had taken place but decided not to say who they thought it was.
2: Even if we do, in time, and it does take time, uh, form a view
1: on which country this is, it may well not be in Australia's interests to name that country. Uh Aha. See, there's a funny thing that the Australian government does. They're happy to blame Iran, North Korea and Russia for cyber attacks, but sometimes they decide not to point the finger at anyone at all out of fear of upsetting the country they think did it. However, ask any exterior security expert and they'll tell you... It's likely to be China, frankly. It's a funny little diplomatic dance we do when it comes to threats to Australia. We disclose enough information so that China knows they're the main suspect, but we don't name them in order to avoid pissing them off. Which is kind of pointless because they're already pissed off.
2: I mean, you've only got to look at China's conduct towards Australia in recent times, which has been one series of bullying uh, exercises after another.
1: It's been almost three years since the ban on Huawei, and Malcolm Turnbull says what's happened since then shows he made the right choice.
2: You know, anyone that said, oh, you know, the Chinese government would never require Huawei to assist them in their espionage activities and... Uh, or disruption activities and, you know, that that just would be ludicrous. I mean, you would be, you know, you couldn't possibly make that assumption.
1: Malcolm Turnbull last visited China in April 2016. Scott Morrison, who became Prime Minister on the day the Huawei announcement was made, has not been given an invitation to Beijing. In fact, Scott Morrison hasn't spoken to Xi Jinping at all since 2019. Well, there hasn't
2: been an opportunity to do so, but um, the the, the, the the welcome and the invitation for such a discussion is always there uh, from our perspective.
1: But even if they do chat and sort out their differences and drop all the trade barriers, which, you know, maybe, Chinese companies are still not going to be allowed to be involved in the rollout of 5G. And there are serious long-term ramifications for this. For one thing, it means there is an increasing separation between Western and Chinese technology.
3: US stocks were smashed this week, after Google banned access to popular apps like YouTube for new Huawei handsets.
1: The Chinese government chose to cut their people off from the global internet, and now other countries, led by Australia, the US and India, are cutting China off from technological collaboration. We're heading for a world where there are two separate internets and two entirely separate tech sectors, neither talking to or helping the other. This not only means that it'll be harder to figure out what's going on in China, but it will also make everything more expensive and innovation slower. It means that even if China stops blocking our exports and starts answering our phone calls, the new technological cold war will likely continue. China, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Iris Zhao, Will Ockenden and Amelia Tan. Our series producer is Yasmin Parry. Su Lin Wong's book is called The Beijing Bureau. If you want more analysis of the latest China news, check out the ABC's new weekly TV programme China Tonight with Stan Grant. It's available on iview. Next.
0: Over a quarter of international students are from China.
1: In the last 30 years, Australian universities have started to rely on fees from Chinese international students to get by.
3: One in ten students at Australian universities now hail from China and their fees account for up to a quarter of the total income of some universities. It's
1: become a significant income stream. Given that education is our third largest exports... Third largest export... Third largest export industry... Third highest export... Australia's third most valuable export sector... But after years of talking about Chinese students in terms of being a commodity, have we started to treat them like one?
3: I think there's a point where Australian universities treat international students like cash cows on campus.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic put a stop to hundreds of thousands of Chinese international students coming to Australia. But when the pandemic is over, will they come back? China has issued a warning to its citizens to be cautious about studying in Australia because of the risk of racist attacks. That's next. On China, if you're listening,
3: you've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.